Good morning. I'd like to ask for your attention for some, uh, I'd like to do some mapping with you this morning, uh, charting territories of meditative experience. Uh, I believe such maps are useful because they help to orient. Um, what we go through is often personal, it is often charged, it is often not easy to distinguish features and find <coughs> Uh, without having found features, it's uh, a little like fumbling in the dark. Yeah, in the uh, in an ideal and fair fair world, world meditation would be a clean business, you know, clear task, clear medium, clear approach, clear experimental order, clear outcome. The real world meditation is messy business. You know, we can't stay clean in it. Uh, instead of having a clear a clean experimental order and a clean lab and a clean working hypothesis which you then verify or falsify it's more like kind of fumbling down a rickety stairs into the dark you know it's gloomy down there there's a messy workbench all the tools are in disarray you have <laughs> grubby hands and <laughs> you know and uh, you're in this grotesque situation whereby the instruments by which you should conduct your experiments is actually the very thing you should do your experiment on. Yeah? <laughs> so. so it's a highly unscientific uh, <coughs> sort of approach we, we all take. So it's, we have to approach this in the greatest respectful manner with the greatest possible of clarity. That's why I believe some of these maps come in useful. So, um, Early on I mentioned basically the distinction between <coughs> voluntary and involuntary attention, which since William James is, uh, we know, uh, a very, uh, very Buddhist spirit, uh, like many Buddhist, many contemplative tradition, early Buddhist teachings also have clearly realized that involuntary attention is of uh, great use for evolu evolutionary reason, but is of very little use when it comes to mind cultivation. That's the kind of attention that is pulled out of us when things are happening of a certain intensity, when they're um, unforeseen, when they're sudden, when they uh, are uh, when we're not prepared for them. Then involuntary attention kicks in, but unfortunately, it's not very trainable. If it is not stimulated in ways it likes, it easily goes sulking and says moping. It says, well, I didn't get what I want and I'm just nice, nothing nice here and already missed it. And, and then it starts rummaging around in a memory and fantasies and producing something nice, which it finds comfort. Yeah. So that's what involuntary attention does in terms of meditation. So all contemplative traditions focus on voluntary attention. In other words, our capacity to choose what we bestow our attention to, to sustain in a deliberate way, attentional focus on a chosen process, object, situation, event. Yeah? Now, there's different stages of this. We're not speaking of samadhi. Samadhi is not even on the map here, but the stages of attention let me stratify that a little bit. We could say stage zero is uh, no 
attentional anchor has been determined. Attention just goes wherever it pleases. Yeah? Hear a loud sound, my mind is out there. Think of a recipe, my mind is there. She coughs, I think of her getting worried about her or being annoyed about her. Go back here, my knee twitches, I go back to my knee. Yeah? This is stage zero. No attentional anchor. Attention just goes where it pleases. Basically, involuntary attention rules. Stage one would be, I have an anchor, I have a task, I have a plan A, which is my meditative task, and I have a plan B, an agreement with myself that I come back to this task if I find I'm doing something else. I'm getting pulled off the sledge, basically. Yeah? I keep getting pulled out of my tracks, I lose my object, but I recall and I come back. That would be stage one. Stage two would be something like... Um, I'm maintaining reasonably a focus of attention on the chosen process. Occasionally I'm really pulled left and right. There are strong, uh, sometimes less strong distractions. But I basically keep coming back. Yeah? Stage three would be something like, I have established object constancy with my task. I'm staying on it. There the periphery, there is distractions, thoughts, things are coming in, but I'm basically staying in a flowing sort of manner with my chosen sensation, my chosen task. Yeah. That's where things become interesting. That's where we basically stop talking of naked attention and we start speaking of mindfulness. Yeah. When the flowing quality, the capacity to continually be with something and stay in relationship with a chosen object, kind of kicks in. And then mm, stage four, that's where it really gets interesting, where instead of having an object constancy, the field of awareness is now stable enough that my mind can handle objects arising and objects disappearing without my mindfulness disappearing with them. Yeah? So instead of having just a topical, very narrow focus of attention, I now have a, an attentional field a field type of awareness that allows for things to arise in it and disappear without my stability of awareness going with the disappearance of these things. Yeah? After that, it's samadhi. Yeah? When you stabilize that field, it's samadhi. We're in a different territory. Yeah? It doesn't feel different. It just feels like the con continuation of this. But it's useful to recognize where one is at with one's own mind and with, say, the continuity of object as a necessary prerequisite for a, a, s a stable field of awareness. Now, there are days when you just sit down and your mind is open and bright and stable and you don't need to hold this. They're not marked, these stages. Yeah? They're also not canonical, just to be clear. Yeah? They're uh, my little map. Uh, and maybe your map looks different, but it will be somewhere on the spectrum of that process. Yeah. Establishing object constancy, establishing field awareness, deepening, stabilizing. There will, even if you have field awareness, there will be still thoughts, there will be still distractions, you still hear things, you, your s thoughts will still crop up, they're not gone. But they're no longer pulling you off, they're no longer threatening the fundamental stability of your awareness field. Now what's happening if this doesn't happen, <laughs> if mindfulness doesn't happen, yeah, we spoke of the hindrances the other night. That would be a traditional Buddhist psychological way of saying what can go wrong with mindfulness or where 
can I get lost? Um, we could look at another map. How does mindfulness get lost in, in psychological terms? So the first thing that I may lose is fluency. You know, my attention latches onto something and doesn't let go of this. I come in here and I sit here and my whole mind is focused on the way she looked at me when we just had that little exchange outside the house yeah, five minutes ago. And the thing is like burned into my lens and my attention has lost its fluency and is still with this thing. Yeah. So I may lose fluency in my awareness, in becoming fixated, becoming obsessional in some way, becoming um, completely rigid on a facet of my experience that is increasingly further in the past. Yeah. So losing fluency is one way mindfulness can get lost. I can lose the here and now. I can just lose lateral and situational awareness because I'm in a reverie or I'm in a fantasy or I'm uh, so focused on something that I'm carrying with me, nobody else sees it, but I'm obsessed with it. And I can simply be imp uh, not impervious to what's going on here and now. I may not have any situational, embodied, relational, awareness going on because I have lost the here and now because of an anxiety I may carry because of an obsession I may carry because of preoccupation that seems to take all available mindfulness space and so forth so the loss of here and now yeah. somebody sent me a link the other day showing a video of a shopping mall somewhere in probably Korea there's a shopping wall with a little fountain there, and there's a young woman with her <coughs> mobile phone <coughs> just completely preoccupied with what's going on and marching straight into that fountain. <laughs> that, that would be a fairly graphic example of, uh, you know, self-damaging loss of here and now. Um, I, may, um, I may lose the body, yeah? I may lose embodiment. After fluency, after here and now, I may lose embodiment. I may completely become oblivious of what's going on in my somatic uh, embodied uh, basic appearance. Yeah? I, I may not feel the pain I feel. I may not feel that I need to go to the loo. I may not feel that I'm cold, that I'm stiff, that I'm hungry. I may not feel that my body gives me alarming signals that some of the situation around me is becoming dangerous or uh, I may simply lose what somatic intelligence I have. Yeah. We're very good as a culture to produce that. And the amount of information throughput we have demands from all of us that we negotiate, you know, in terms of human history, un previously unknown amounts of just data just to get some just get a ticket from here to there you know I mean, I mean you have to process so many pieces of information or just get money out of a wall or, or get money into a wall <laughs> you know, takes so much complexity all our lives have complexity even if you live as a monk in a monastery you're not sh spared this you know you have tremendous amount of complexity of holding an international community and 
keeping tabs on everybody and make sure the visas are all okay and you know the guy who sits in the cave is being fed by whom and how long and <laughs> you know somebody's got to make sure that the the sewage is working and uh, the parking lot is there and ready for the visit isn't you know you you can't be spared complexity however you live today yeah so um under the weight of this complexity, sometimes our primary somatic awareness just caves in. Yeah. So we can lose the body. Um, we can lose the space. Our mindfulness can collapse onto a small aspect of our experience. So we lose the and in our experience and suddenly we become obsessional. One pain can take away all the space, all my aspirations. Pain, nothing is as strong as pain does that, yeah? We can just shrivel. If you hurt people, you can make their worlds go very, very small. Fear and pain are the most dramatic forms how our worlds lose the space. Yeah? All my meditative achievements, akin, you know, meditating almost 35 years, you know, <laughs> just give me... <laughs> Give me 103 degrees fever and, you know, my samatha is gone. <laughs> yeah. uh, not even pain, just fever. Yeah. Uh, give me powerful uh, pain. I tried the other day, I tried going to the dentist and having my, my am amalgam and fittings pulled out and replaced. That's what I did with my first savings after having left the monastery and saved up some money. After a couple of years of saving, I had my amalgam and fittings pulled out and replaced with porcelain because I didn't trust that amalgam. Uh, probably not the word in English. The, the, um, mercury amalgam and stuff. So, um, I tried hanging in there without <laughs> without painkillers. <laughs> it was a real challenge. Yeah. <laughs> it was a real challenge. I had to put everything in. Just, I'm so spoiled in my life. I've not had much physical pain. Yeah. Just pain can reduce you so much. So we can lose under the influence of pain, emotional pain or physical pain, we can lose the space of our, the capacity of a mind to hold things in parallel ways. That's the big thing about mindful. It is capable of holding peripheral stuff and central stuff. Yeah? That's the big difference between samatha and sati. Sati is inclusive and samatha is exclusive. Yeah? So if you hold something in sati, then many things can take place. You may foreground one of the things, but many things at the same time can find space in your mind. Now, if you lose that space, if you have an absorption, this is beautiful. But if the, the, the disruption is strong enough, the, the focus, the samatha focus will break. It'll either displace the intrusion or it'll break yeah it's not a very in inclusive experience it's a useful experience it has powerful results but it's not very inclusive you can't live there you can't drive a car or meet your kid in a samatha experience yeah so sati is the thing where it's happening that's what we need to develop brahma viharas what we need to develop ethics what we need to develop insight and what we need to develop stillness Sati is the, the, the seed quality of mind, or seed faculty, from which all of the other things branch out. 
So that sati is precious, and if that sati loses its space, we're completely reduced to one minute aspect of our experience, often enough an unpleasant aspect. So it's good to acknowledge how much space is there. (coughs) And finally, maybe most disastrously, we can lose the other. Something can happen to us that alone this part of the experience feels real. And I bet if you're there, it feels really alone. If alone you are real uh, in your world, then you really are feeling alone in this. So I can lose the other. I can lose my interlocutor. I can lose my fellow human beings, my fellow practitioners, my friends, my partners, my kids. So these are questions you may ask, you know, how much in my sati is there mobility, is there here and now, is there space, is there um, body, how much am I actually aware of others, how much relational connection I experience, even with my eyes closed and not talking. Another map, tasks in meditation. First task, very clearly, still the mind. I have to learn the skill to take my mind from wherever it is, however frantic, mad, distracted, or already calm, maybe, from wherever it is, I need to find skills to make it more still, to modulate intensity, to modulate speed, to modulate conceptual activity. There's no way around this. You can't just sit down and try to do transcendent insights. You will be just sitting down and thinking. (laughs) This is, you know, it's better than running around and thinking, but it's not meditation. So the first task is learning to modulate the activity of mind towards greater still, stillness, greater calm, greater tranquility, greater stability. Yeah. There's no way around this. Second big task is de-identification. I need to be able to step back. That's the famous distancing. That's the famous thing I get through observing. Yeah? I find out there is a thing I can see, I am not the thing, because I can see it, there is something else there that is capable of understanding. Ergo, I am not completely the thing, I cannot be completely identified with the content of mind. Very crucial moment. Some of you may maybe think this is precisely what meditation is about. Going somewhere safe, where nothing bad can happen to me anymore, where I'm in control of things, where things are safely removed from me, and I'm feeling very, very peaceful. And that's true. That's absolutely indispensable part of meditation. You need to be able to do that. The rules are very simple. Because before you can work with it, you need to be able to stay out of it. So unless you're able to stay out of the thing that troubles you or besets you or fascinates you, it's not very realistic that you're working with it. You need to establish enough safety so that this can be held rather than this thing holding you by, you know, uh, by the neck. But unfortunately this stage alone doesn't do the job. It doesn't transform. It just creates safety in some perspective. 
the transforming comes from the next stage. You, it's kind of you humbly and in a negotiated fashion respectfully crawl back in to the very same thing that you have tried to distance yourself from. You, with the help of stillness and with the help of your confidence that you can find a distance, you crawl back in and you begin to investigate. You probe, you experiment, you tease out, you feel, you see what changes, you inquire into the depth of this. Does it really, is it really what it looks like? Yeah. Can I really stay with the body and go closer to this? This is messy. You can't stay clean with this. You will be pulled in. And you'll have to have the humility of acknowledging I've been pulled in. What I was trying to investigate now is, is riding me right now. <laughs> yeah? Or as one of the Thai, Thai teachers put it very clearly, there's a lot of martial language in Thai meditation teaching. And very much in the vein of what Yanai said, you know, if I would teach, if I would speak to you in the same way as some of the Thai meditation teachers teach to their laid-back villagers, uh, this would have very different results. Than, you know, if you tell a bunch of Germans to fight their kilesas, you know, you get a very different result than if you, <laughs> if you tell sort of in martial language where bullets are used and <laughs> things are hunted <laughs> yeah, to Thai villages. Yeah. It tastes quite a it's quite a takes a mind bending when you're going there as a westerner and you start to actually understand what these guys are saying so anyway Ajahn Man said you know you go out on your meditation path and you're going out there to hunt defilements yeah <laughs> and you know after a short while you find out that while you're hunting their defilements actually the defilements are hunting you very quickly <laughs> 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 so this becomes more graphic when you think walking up and down your meditation path. There you are, kind of, you know, <laughs> tracing defilements and suddenly, and yes, they've, they've caught up with you. So we all know this. And the result or the, the necessity is we, we need to shuttle. It's a, it's, a, it's a shuttle diplomacy job. You know, you need to probe in. You realize I've blown it. This was too close. I've been reeled in. It's not working. The thing I'm trying to investigate actually is riding me. I have to pull back out and go back to stabilizing, stilling, calming. But this third stage is necessary for <coughs> transformation. This is where most of the work takes place. This is where I meet my story. It's inevitably personal. It is biographical. It has to do with your temperament, with your conditioning, with what you bring to this practice. Your virtues and your hang-ups will come in there. Yeah. And then, in the final stage, you'll learn to understand the personal, your highly personal message of learning. You learn to understand it again in universal terms. You, this as, as if you stand back and you recognize what has been happening to you when it's happening to her or to him. And you recognize, even though it looks slightly different, you recognize the pattern over there because you know it from yourself. And you've learned to, to not infer, but to, to recognize from the personally made explorations you have done in an introspective way, you've learned to identify the abstract pattern of it. And you learn to recognize that abstract pattern in other situations, in other people, or in other situations in your own life. So you begin to, be, to, to see the bigger picture. I would think every 
one of these stages is necessary in your practice. They will not come as neatly listed and uh, demarcated as I uh, spell them out here, but they will be they will be happening and they will be needed. If you try to shirk one of them, it is likely that your meditation is is short of something. It will not be transformative or it will be you know, you will practice a lot of patience, but maybe not a lot of insight. Or you will practice a lot of stillness, but maybe not a lot of relational skill. Or, yeah. So you will basically lose the transformative power of it if you try to avoid these stages. Unfortunately, there's also pathology that goes <laughs> in these stages. <laughs> you can get stuck. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if you're stuck in stage in this in the stilling stage, then you basically have a feeling it's never still enough. You know. All this inside stuff, this is for people who really have samadhi, but I don't, you know. Before I can even start, I basically need to get rid of this and rid of that and need to become more and more and more still. Yeah. I'll never get there. I just don't listen when they speak of lakanas and insights and investigation. This is just a, a risk to my stillness. I need to get more power under the belt. So, The pathology of stage two is it's never safe enough. Uh, I need to get further. This needs to be more controlled. You know, it is still moving. You know, this I can't handle this. You know, out there. You know, further out. Yeah, it's getting better. Yeah, so I'm. I d- I don't want any intensity whatsoever. I don't want any movement whatsoever. I want control. Safety comes from control, and control comes from distance. So the further away I can get, yeah, earplugs, eye shades, single rooms. More distance to my neighbors, you know. <laughs> Oust the coffers and the sneezers, you know. <laughs> Band the nylon trousers. <clears throat> Men with moustaches seem dangerous to me. No moustaches in my... <laughs> and it's not safe enough. There's people who still look at me, you know. I don't want to be smiled at when I'm practicing my... You know? So we get into a sort of... We get into, it's not safe enough, not enough security, not enough control. Stage three, if you're stuck in stage three, then you dramatize, you know. It's very personal. You've got to work through your stuff, you know. You've got to really work through. There's these two years which you're still missing, which you still don't have quite understood how your family relational dynamics have worked. You need to get back there. There's a lot of work ahead. and This needs to be, you know, it has to be dramatic. It has to be intense. It has to be cathartic. Yeah? You can't just sit here like a mummy. You, know? you have to really feel through this. There's no liberation unless you really suffer. Yeah? So, <laughs> so there's so much stuff there which you still have to handle, process, work through. You know, identify, name and all this. You know, it doesn't stop. Stage four, little danger, maybe too cognitive an attempt to pattern your experience, you know, too cognitive an attempt to neatly package your experience into khandas, ayatanas, nivaranas, uh, bojangas, this kind of thing. You you may preempt cognitively uh, your experience and try to um, map what you feel or what you experience or, or you, you, you may be tempted to try to, to read what you su- suspect a good Buddhist experience in terms of psychology into your experience without actually going there. You know? You're kind of holding the map so close that you can't see the terrain. You 
None of these maps is canonical, so take them with the necessary pinch of salt. Um, and uh, if they are of any use, make use of them. They may not come exactly to you in that way, but there is a, a territory, and it's good to recognize some features of that territory. Yeah? Is this still? Is this spacious? If you sit with us now for a few days, you will probably find voices that tell you what you are lacking, what you are deficient in. You know, you will have a sense, this is, I'm not getting enough of this, I'm getting too much of that. So these voices are part of your meditative experience. They're not the truth about you or about your condition. They're part of your meditative experience. Many of these voices are very revealing if you listen to them, not if you believe them, if you listen to them. Avalokiteshvara, bodhisattva of compassion, listens to the cries of the world. He doesn't believe the cries of the world. <laughs> okay, there's a different quality there. His kind of attention is a deep heart listening, not a gullible believing. Yeah. So, make use of this. Uh, we've forked out quite a number of tools in the last few days. Um, the hors d'oeuvre is on the, you know, staked out. Um, help yourself. <laughs> Thank you.
And so today is our last full day together. A blessed and fortunate day to practice and the day in which we will in the afternoon begin to engage with the process of what it means to be moving towards the end of our retreat, though not having yet arrived there. So for now, to really stay here, to really be here, to really use this time well, which may include our awareness of what is yet to come, but remember that we're here when that arises. This morning there will be the program as previous mornings, sitting, walking, standing, sitting, walking, standing, sitting, (laughs) walking, standing. You know how it goes. Make this practice your own. Don't do it because it says on a piece of paper that this is the time according to someone else's planning of the day. Do it because it's something you see, because I trust that you do see and you do know that this is a value for your life, because it is. Do it for that reason, because that piece of paper, it won't be there in a couple of days' time. There won't be someone running around with a bell going, come on, come on. There won't be anyone sitting at the front saying, hmm, where are those people? They haven't shown up. Actually, we don't do that, but um, sometimes the thought that we might encourages us to turn up, I think. Make the practice your own. Come because you love to be awake. Because you love to be free. Because you love whatever it is that you love and care about most deeply. That's what we're here for. Would you like some water? You can have this. I've got nothing nasty. (laughs) So as we practice together, This morning, we'll also be offering some individual interviews. And we've, I think, managed to uh, schedule in this morning an interview for pretty much everyone who's asked us that we've still managed to retain the note amongst the uh, the sort of the the flow of paperwork that we uh, have to handle as we go through the retreat and the teaching role. So do please check on the notice board if you've asked for an interview or we've spoken with you in some way or form about meeting with you. It's very likely that that space will be uh, located and there will be a time and a place to meet with one of us. Um, Now it's also the case that we have a number of spaces and a reasonable number indeed of empty spaces for people who may yet still wish to have an interview that we will place on the notice board in just a few moments. Again, very clearly, the priority to be for those people who have not yet had the opportunity to meet with any of us. Not just if you've not yet managed to meet with all of us, individually. And we, of course, would love to be able to meet with each of you, all of us, each. But uh, we don't have that capacity. So give space for those people first. 
And if at about 10 o'clock there are still empty spaces and you've actually had an interview interview before, but you feel like you really need to attend to something to do with what's happening here for you in your practice, it's okay to take a space. But hold the urge up till then. Unless, if, as I said, you haven't had one, please feel free to make use of them. It's not that you're required to if you haven't. We're not going to... That's, it is, of course, still optional. We need a practice leader for the sitting at 10 o'clock. Is there someone who doesn't anticipate having an interview scheduled this morning? Sorry? Marlon? Thank you, Marlon. Yeah. So um, if you could ring the bell at 10.45. At 10.45, the end of that sitting period, there will be a standing. Stand up and begin. See how long it lasts. There won't be a bell to end that one. We'll just stand. You might stand a few moments or minutes. You might still be there when the next sitting begins. It's all practice. It's okay. This afternoon we will, uh, as I said, begin to attend to some of what is important to attend to for the movement towards the ending of the retreat. And the two things I want to specifically name with regard to that, at 3.30 there will be a guided meditation practice involving speaking and listening in a way that's really helpful and beneficial for entering that territory consciously and learning skills for that territory, which we haven't practiced so much during the retreat. And I'd really encourage you all to come along and hear and we'll lay out how it works. It's quite safe, it's quite effective, and it's actually kind of also sometimes enjoyable. You are not compelled to participate in it, but come along and see. I'd really like to think you might want to do this. But if in the end you decide, actually, I'm not sure that's quite right for me, you'll have that option at that point. But come along and hear what's on offer. Um, and then at 4.45, at this point it is important that you are all here. So please come along at 4.45. I see we don't have a bell scheduled for then, but um, I think we're probably going to need one. Um, so we'll arrange that. Um, and at 4.45 we want to speak with you about the tradition of dana at uh, IMS and in the insight meditation tradition. And also the manager, Roberta, would like to speak with you about some of the practical elements of ending the retreat from the point of view of the organisation. So please do come along at that time. And then the day will continue. That's probably enough information for now. Stay with your practice. Stay with what's true for you right here. And let's see what unfolds. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.